friends. Welcome to the show. It's called Stand to Reason, and I'm your host, Greg Kokel. i uh, uh, got some news here for you. I just uh, Our number of outposts has just exploded to 34. Last week, we launched on Labor Day the very first outpost. Now, Post is a local group of Christians who are meet, meet together on a regular basis, whether it's weekly or every other week or every month or whatever is up to the outpost director. But uh, And they're standard reason folk. You know, they get together, and they use our materials, and they talk about apologetics, and it's a way of kindred spirits hanging out together in different parts of the country or the world. Well, we have 34 of them now in 20 different states, and two of them are in the U.K., and we have 50 that are just kind of, well, let me just think. Uh, I wrote that number down. I think we got, like, by the end of the month, we should have 50 in full-fledged, so another 16 to go, and more people are signing up for this on a regular basis. You can go to, let's see, go to str.org, and then I think under resources, you'll drop down, you'll see outposts, and go to outposts, and then uh, there's a line there on the side that say locations or something. You can hit that button, and, a, and the map shows comes up and shows around the country where these outposts are at. You can expand it, find the location, get the information about the director, if they're in your community, and arrange to be to a meeting and join the group or whatever. So this is kind of our way of trying to penetrate in a, in a much more thoroughgoing way uh, than we have. But pe- penetrate... Um, I mean, I think we have a lot of penetration, not just in the U.S., but around the country. We have penetration. But uh, the the uh, uh, difference here is that, you know, most of our community are individuals. This is a way of hanging together in your local community with other stand to reason folk. And Robbie Lashua is doing a fabulous, fabulous job of um, pulling together the enterprise and uh, and uh, putting a structure to it. Been dreaming about this, thinking about it for almost thirty years, and now we're able to actually do it. And to see uh, thirty-four of them up and running within the last seven days, eight days—wow, that's cool for me. I'm thrilled, and it's just going to be this this momentum. I think is going to build. Uh, very, very quickly. So uh, I know we have applications from other countries even and other states, um, and uh, and I know this is going to expand rapidly. So if you want information about that, being a director, having an outpost in your area, all that information is available on the website. And so I recommend you go str.org and uh, drop down menu under, what did I say, um, uh, ministries or uh, I don't have it in front of me, so but you, you can find it under resources, I think. Then you'll see outposts and then just follow the links and all the details there. So we have um, been doing a strategy called open mic calls, which have been a lot of fun, and uh, that is where people will phone in, uh, either phone in directly and I'll give you the number, or go to our radio page at str.org, and there's a feature there where you can just push the button and record a call. And then the call gets recorded, and when I have an opportunity, like I do now, then we're going to uh, let you have your say, a live recorded question. I won't be able to respond, interact personally with you, obviously, but at least we can feel the question. And that makes it easier for a lot of people who can't wait online. 
or can't call in at the right time. And when things are slow here, I've got a lot of resources to go to, and that's uh, that works too. So incidentally, if you um, want to phone it in <clears throat> rather than going to the website, it's very simple to do, 857-DIAL-STR, 857-D-I-A-L-S-T-R, or by the numbers 857 342 Eight seven. So let's. We have a, a call, and I'm not usually people leave their name, but this is. Uh, there's no name on this one. No name given. Um, and uh, very interesting question I'd like to address. So let's go with. Um, we'll just call this the AK-47 call. Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, my question is: If I were a Jew living during the Holocaust, <laughs> would I have been justified in getting an AK-47? and defending myself rather than being taken to the gas chamber in relation to uh, the tribulation period where we lose our martyr's crown if we were to die fighting back rather than just allowing them to kill us. Thanks. All right. Great, great question. And uh, there's a couple of things going on here. And um, I guess I'm going to offer some preliminary thoughts because I don't know that, <clears throat> pardon me, I have worked all this out for myself. I have some, I have thought about this issue. Now, uh, let me, there's two parts here. One is the Jew during the Holocaust. Well, it, for me, it is absolutely clear in that circumstance, given the fact that these were people, I'm, I'm reading another book at the moment about the Holocaust. It's, I'm, I'm, maybe this sounds bizarre, but I am somewhat fascinated by that period of time and all the details and the first-person accounts and that Second World War. And uh, uh, I'm reading a book now called The Sisters of Auschwitz. Uh, these are, I, I think if that's the title. <clears throat> and uh, these are two gals who, for most most of the war, were able to avoid detectionist Jews and actually save and hide Jews in a place called the Nest, and um, and then in in Holland, and then got caught, were sent to Auschwitz. They survived. They were the, one of the last people to see Anne Frank. She was part of the group from the Netherlands that traveled with them to Auschwitz. But um, in that circumstance, I think it would have been entirely appropriate um, to use violence to protect the innocent. Uh, in fact, there was a there was a uh, big underground movement, and these gals were involved with that. And uh, sometimes that meant assassinations. Uh, I see this in the context of warfare and innocents being captured and taken away to be murdered in a systematic fashion, and. I think the, um, uh, the principle of the legitimacy of self-defense applies in this circumstance, even using self-defense, using lethal means to do this. Now, by the way, this kind of thing actually happened not just with resistance in individual circumstances, but it actually happened with larger groups. Recall the Warsaw Ghetto and the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto when it became clear they were uh, the, the Nazis were emptying the Warsaw Ghetto to send, um, uh, to send the Jews to extermination camps. 
and there were actually six extermination camps. Auschwitz, famously, Treblinka, Majdanek, uh, uh, Belzic, Chalmno, and Sobibor. These were the six camps that were given specifically for the extermination of the Jews. Lots of other camps, there are lots of other deaths, etc., but these were the death camps. Okay, uh, And what's curious is Sobibor was also the location of a huge uprising of Jews who fought back. And so they fought back with lethal uh, resistance against the Germans. And I think it's, I mean, when you read the stories, and I think there was a, a couple of films made about the Sobibor uprising, um, and, I, and I saw a, a longish one many years ago about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I, I, you cannot but admire these people who are, who are not willing to die without a fight. They fought back. And I think that's completely morally defensible. Incidentally, Sobibor closed down as a result of that uprising. It was the largest escape from any death camp. Uh, it was almost impossible to escape from any of them, but some people did, even Auschwitz. Uh, or Auschwitz-Birkenau, because there were two camps that were right connected to each other. But uh, Sobibar was closed down by the, by the, by the Nazis. A hundred thousand people had been executed by that time, but nevertheless, uh, some good came from that. Now, the question, the second part of the question has to do with Christians, relating to the tribulation period. And let's just set tribulation period aside, because even if we're not in the tribulation period now, there certainly are many Christians who are suffering persecution, tribulation at the hands of non-Christians, even being executed. Okay, so that now the question is, are we justified in doing the same kind of thing to fight back rather than just allowing them to kill us? And this is where I'm not sure. I will tell you something clearly, though, that you will find in the book of Acts, and this is also consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. When you are persecuted, you try to get out. You try to flee. There's no glory in persecution for persecution's sake. Now, there was a time in the first couple centuries of the Christian church that Christians wanted to die as martyrs. It was considered noble to do that, and I, it is noble to die as a martyr, but um, it almost became, I don't know, what we call now a social contagion. They were looking, I don't know if they look forward to it, but it was a, it was a, it was a mark of, 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 of spiritual nobility to die as a martyr, and so they weren't going to run from it. They were going to embrace it, but in the New Testament, Paul ran. He left. Sometimes he was dragged away by his friends, but get him out of here. This is too dangerous. First time, soon after he became a follower of Jesus, um, he, was, he was the Lord over a wall in a basket to get him out of town because of the persecution and the threats against his life. Notice also, by the way, when he is arrested uh, there later in the book of Acts, and eventually appeals 
to uh, to Caesar because he knows he's innocent of charges that uh, make him worthy of death. Um, he learns that there is a plot against him, and therefore tells arranges for the for the military guard to find out about it so they can protect him from that threat, which they did. So the idea of trying to avoid persecution and flee persecution and even seek armed protection against persecution through legal means or the the the, the legal um forces there in the case in that case would be the Romans it's is right there in the New Testament what you don't have and Jesus says also in Matthew 10, flee to the next town. They persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So that seems to be appropriate. But what about taking up arms against those that are hurting you? And this is where I, I think I would be, uh, uh, I guess I, I, would, I, I would be tempted to draw the line. So I'm not, I'm not giving a, a firm answer here. The history that we have of Christians being persecuted is that Christians were willing to suffer death rather than uh, re- renounced Christ. Uh, would it be okay for them to fight back for the sake of Christ, those who are seeking to kill them for not renouncing Christ? Um, I don't know. Uh, the question here is, relating to the tribulation period, would we lose our martyr's crown? If we were to die fighting, rather than just lying to kill them, I, I, I don't know if you die, died fighting, you're still dying as a martyr. But it's a fair question. Part of me wants to say you can always fight back if you're capable of doing that, and to defend yourself using lethal means if you're able to do that. But, you know, I, I'm just interested, curious, and I, and I don't know the answer to this. Some of you may know this, and you can send us send Amy an email or, you know, on our website, whatever. Uh, if there's any occasion in history where Christians who are being persecuted fought back, just like the circumstances I just described with Sobibor, for example, the Warsaw Ghetto, or even the, the underground in some of these occupied countries, like the Netherlands. Uh I don't know if there's any case of that. And there's something about the idea that gives me a little pause. And at the same time, we are told, if we can flee, flee. And Paul himself did not allow himself to be martyred when he had a, a garrison of Roman soldiers available to him to protect him. And had the Jews who were under an oath not to eat or drink until Paul was dead, if they had attacked the Roman garrison, the Roman garrison would have fought back and killed people at, in a sense, Paul's behest to keep them from martyring Paul. Now, Paul was martyred eventually through the legal system in Rome. He was beheaded. But uh, so that leaves that part of the question open a little bit in my own mind. I'm just going to have to think more about it. And if anybody has any insight, you can send it to me, and we'll we'll see. Uh, it's a it's a fair question, and uh, I I like I said I 
it was all it's it's a wonder to me when I read the accounts of the Nazis uh, collecting the Jews the way they did everywhere in a very efficient manner and sending them off to the extermination camps. Why there wasn't more resistance? I think part of it is that they they were clever and careful how they did it. Uh, they made people think that they would be safe at these camps, and there were a lot of labor camps where executions were not standard. People did die, and people were killed. But they were not going there to be killed. They were going there to do labor, and a lot of people, even in this book I'm reading now, last train out, very last train, took this 1,091 Jews to Auschwitz. There was the last train out. They thought they were maybe going to other camps. Theresienstadt, for example, in Czechoslovakia, which was like the, uh, they called it the paradise camp. I mean, it was terrible, but it was a lot better than the others. It was a kind of showcase to the Red Cross that how nice the Germans were to their interns, their, their, their inmates, rather. So those who had been interned there, interred there, whatever. But the the option was they were, they were not going to be killed, and so maybe they got fooled. And then they went into the showers, and they, it wasn't showers. It wasn't water. It was gas that came out. Oh, anyway, so that's still up in the air a little bit for me. hope that helps. Let's take a break, okay? And we'll come back with more on Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All right, friends. Uh, We've got a caller from Nashville, and let's go to Patrick. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Greg. Yes. Uh, I'm a new, proud uh, strategic partner oh, with you folks. Fabulous. And I am so happy about that. I saw you probably, oh gosh, 45 years ago, somewhere in Southern California before I moved to Tennessee. Really? And I happened to 
happened to track you down on online the other day, and I thought, boy, it looks like Greg's a little older now. Whatever happened I, to the, yeah, yeah. like, like realized, almost half a century older. Yeah. So truly, I'm was it like 40, definitely 45 years ago? That would be like the 70s, right? I'm, I'm yeah, in, in, well, a, in about a week and a half, I will be 49 years in the Lord. So that means this is like late 70s, 77, 78, somewhere in there. Yeah, well, maybe it was, I think it was, no, I'm sorry, I think it was in the 80s that okay. I saw you, and I can't remember where it was, it was several years ago, huh. more than a couple of decades, Yeah, well, but I, I was... I have I'm as sorry, much hair now as I did then, but it's all white. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I really appreciate your ministry and all you've done, and that you so much of your stuff, so oh, good. Uh, I was You're happy welcome. to become a partner. I and, am happy uh, for that, too. By the way, were you one of the 100 or 171, as it turned out? Is that I was so were you part of, Oh, you missed it. No, no, I missed it because I was, you know, I was listening to all of your podcasts, and you said, "Hey, we're you know trying to get a hundred people," and uh, it was already it was an August podcast, but it was you know I would think I was listening to it first week in September or something. I got you. Well, but anyway, hey, thank you. Anyway, you are still a valued member of the team, even though you weren't one of the one hundred, as it were. Nevertheless, well, thank, thank you. you. I hope everybody jumps aboard. Okay, um, I do too. So this is what, <laughs> yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you. I have a million questions, but this is one that's really important to me at the moment. My grandson is just turned twelve, mm-hmm. and he hasn't been particularly uh, church, so to speak. His parents are are not practicing Christians, and I would guess they're not Christians at all. But his uh, his great aunt, uh, with whom he was living for a while, took him to or sent him to a church camp about four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he came back uh, after three days, and I got a text message from his other grandmother mm-hmm. saying, I've got great news. He he asked me about Jesus, and we prayed, and he's accepted Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, was elated, um, but I was going to spend a weekend with him out of town, and I happened to start talking to him, and I said, Hey, buddy, you know, I understand that you've... Uh, you've you, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he kind of said, "Yeah." And uh, I said, "Well, what, what does that what does that mean to you?" Mm. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and was like, "No, uh, gee, I've got Jesus in my heart." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, what you know? Okay, well, what does that what does that mean to you, buddy?" And well, I don't know. Mm. And so he and I he and I spoke a little bit, and and I felt pretty convinced that that he really didn't know I hate to use the phrase what he was doing but that's uh-huh. the best I can come, come up with and and so uh, I mentioned that to um, some of the other family members mm-hmm. uh, who now well they're not so mad at me anymore but they were very very upset to the point where even one one hung up on me because I said you know I just want to be sure that he understands what he did, and uh-huh. I know you all want to go and get him baptized, but I don't want him up there giving a profession of faith for something he doesn't really understand. Right. So I'm trying to figure out how I can talk to a, a youngster like that to see if he he really understands. And I've talked to him you know, a little bit about the nature of sin and why he needs a Savior, but I just don't feel like he's getting it. Mm-hmm. And... And I'd be, I would be excited to have him baptized because I think they might let me do it. But um, I want to make sure that this is a real 
commitment that he's made at his level um, before we just start going through the motions. I am so glad that you called and we can talk about this because this whole circumstance that you've just described, um, I think, describes a, a problem. And I, I remember a church I was going to a number of years ago. I went to the service, and they said, we had a camp, and here's how many decisions we had for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And everybody, explosive uh, applause right. and rooty tooty hooty, and that's, you know, look at if you have 500 um, people becoming Christians, that is something to sure. rejoice in. But um, I wasn't joining in because I don't know what they were deciding for. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know. Even in a, a, a good church, it's hard to know. I did not want my daughters going to vacation Bible school mm-hmm. and being invited to receive Christ, okay? And here's the important distinction. We do not want decisions for Christ. We want conversions. We do not want ah. decisions we want conversions. I remember uh, uh, Ray Comfort saying once, and Ray Comfort's a, uh, a, a a street preacher, a fabulous guy. A lot of people know who he is, and we've been friends for years and years and years. We don't see each other too often anymore, but uh, he's a great street preacher. And he, he made the comment. He said, I go to church and, and to do an event, and they said, you know, we want to get decisions. He said, decisions? Oh, that's easy. We can get decisions mm-hmm. real easy. I don't want decisions. I want conversions, and conversions ah. are different. Okay, and sometimes when when pe- when people are enjoined, encouraged, especially with, in a social setting with lots of rah rah and the right kind of music and all this other stuff, right. you can get young people to decide mm-hmm. to follow Jesus, invite Jesus. In well, actually, they're they're not even. Dis- deciding to follow Jesus. That, that's, that's more substance than is actually in some of these. It's not follow Jesus, it's receive Jesus into your heart. Now, I understand the language, and the language is put in a way that people could, that younger people can comprehend and understand, and, okay, Jesus comes into your heart, ask him in your heart. But that doesn't mean they understand what Jesus is meant to be for them the rescuer, Mm -hmm. the one who saves. Even language like, you receive him as your Savior and Lord. Well, there are theological definitions for those terms, but that doesn't mean that even the people using the terms are understanding them in a theologically deep way. And it's almost—I never use that language, and the reason is it's too too Mm Christianese. It's just a label, Mm -hmm. Savior and Lord. And um, I don't want people to receive—ask re, Jesus into your heart, receive him as Savior and Lord. Okay, what I want people to do is to get on their knees and beat their breast and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and then follow Jesus, who has rescued them and saved them. Now, in a certain sense, there's a way—those are both— for people with understanding, we're, we're both saying the same thing, but I don't think it works out in practice that way. when The way I choose my synonyms for these things, like receive Christ as Savior and Lord, I am trying to communicate in a way that gives more substance to it. And, okay. um, and I actually don't even think you need to invite people to receive Jesus. 
that you don't have invitations to receive Jesus in the book of Acts. They're just not there. Mm. There are no altar calls. That's historically recent. Rather, you have the gospel communicated in a compelling fashion, accurately, truthfully, and evidentially in many cases. There are reasons that are given, and people are convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they trust Christ. Um, the closest that I can think of to an altar call, I guess, or something like that, is when the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there's a lot there, there's substance. The Lord, meaning Lord God, in human form as the Messiah, the Rescuer, who is Jesus from Nazareth. That's all right in there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you and your whole family. He joined the whole family to respond, and in fact, they did. So that's the closest I could think of, but obviously, it's it's not Paul inviting him to receive Christ. It's him saying, how can I be rescued from the bad situation, the threat of judgment I'm under? And uh, and so that was the, that was the nature. Paul must have been he must have been preaching to the jailer who did not take him seriously until there was a miraculous opening of the gates and a dropping of the chains from their wrists. Yet they did not leave. They didn't leave. They just sat there. And he came in thinking they were gone. He was going to fall on his sword because he knew that was inevitable. Death would be inevitable for him as a soldier who lost his charges. And then he said, you know, well, they're here. What must I do to be saved? So my sense from what you've told me about your grandson is he's moving in a good direction, but he's certainly not there. And the questions that you asked him were perfect. I hear you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yes. What does that mean? And here, what does that mean to you is entirely appropriate. You're not exegeting Scripture. Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out what happened to him. When he says, I'm a Christian, he means what? when he see, says, Savior and Lord. And what he did was, he just responded to a group appeal, and maybe in an emotional moment, whatever. I, I think that those things honestly do more harm than good. Now, uh, yeah. does God use them? Sure. And, oh, that's such a blanket statement. It is a blanket statement. There are exceptions to it. But, but I, I think that a lot of times people have false conversions. Um, and that's why I think if there's baptism is in, in view as a possibility, that's where the individual person has to demonstrate they have a genuine understanding. Sure. Uh, sure. And by the way, even when there appears to be a genuine understanding, that doesn't mean that a true conversion has taken place. Uh, only time can yeah. tell on that. Sure. And one of the things I mentioned to the, excuse me for interrupting, to the no, that's right. the relative who, who hung up on me, I said, you know, I don't want this to be, and I said, you know, think about the parable of the sower of the seed, mm-hmm. and I don't want my grandson to be one of those where it took root, uh, but there was really nothing there. There was no substance there, mm-hmm. and it just withered and died, and yeah. everyone you know, I, that would just break my heart. Yeah, well, and, and that, I appreciate the fact that you liked me using the Colombo tactic. Mm-hmm. No, you did great, and that's yeah. Yeah. that's what do you exactly. Mean by that? Yeah, and then, <laughs> but the question then becomes: what w- was what happened there? A uh, that decision was that a conversion or was that an inoculation? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Some, see, and this is what I say this does more harm than good. It produces people who think that they're Christians and they're not. And then, okay, done with that. Been there, done that. That was no big deal. Okay, move, mm-hmm. let, we'll move on. All right. And uh, so, so I, I, I don't think those kinds of appeals to kids at camp are good. There are, there are people who are listening to the sound of my voice right now, and they're saying, wait a minute, I was at one of those things. I came forward, I prayed, and it stuck. Great. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, there are going to be people like that. But the question is whether that technique is a biblically sound technique and um, not just a technique that God chose to use in spite of itself. But is it a biblically sound technique? And, and, and what's, what about the downside? <clears throat> and I think there is a big downside. So uh, s- since it's not a biblical motif, I'm wary of it. Certainly with kids, altar calls with adults are a little bit different, although they still have liabilities to them. Um, Inviting people to receive Christ, I'm not against that, uh, given Mm -hmm. the conditions are appropriate for that. I have written a piece, um, I don't know if you can find it on the website or not, I'm looking at Amy, I called it the Magic Prayer, I think it was a, a mentoring letter. But it was where, and I've talked about this in the air before, where, yeah, it is on our website, The Magic Prayer. And that's the prayer you find at the end of tracks to pray to receive Christ. I think I prayed a prayer like that. I had a tract that made a difference in my life. I prayed with people to receive Christ using a tract and run into them 40 years later. It happened in my own community. 40 years later, a young man named Keith, who's not a young man anymore, married with kids and everything, but grown up and still following the Lord. However, uh, those things do have some liabilities, so God can use them, but we have to be aware of the liabilities, and what you've just described with your grandson, I think, is an example of that. Now, this isn't bad news. This isn't bad news about your grandson, but uh, it's not necessarily good news. And so this is, I would say, take a wait-and-see attitude and try, since since he's moving in 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 the right direction with this initial responsiveness— um, see what you can do to nurture that and mm-hmm. encourage him. Not baptism, but going to church, spending time with him, talking. Uh, I don't know about your relationship. I don't know what access that you have as a mm-hmm. grandfather, right, given his mm-hmm. own parents' situation, who are not particularly cooperative, apparently. Uh, but I would I would do what you can. And l- listen, the, the, uh, it, it's proverbial, so to speak, the role of grandparents in the life of grandchildren, where you have a, not a particularly religious home, but you have a, a, a spiritually a spiritually mature relative, an aunt or a grandmother or a grandfather, and they become the individual who God uses as the key for mm-hmm. the for the young child to bring them along spiritually. When in their own family, their immediate family, they were not being encouraged. God works in all kinds of ways, and you may be, uh, Patrick, the one God uses to make the biggest difference in their lives. And maybe just put a stone in your shoe? Yep, there you go, or or a bunch of them, because <laughs> yeah. you have a relationship, yeah, right. and move right. them forward and see what happens. Make sense? It sure does, and I, I, I sure appreciate your input, and I know you've got other callers, so I will say goodbye, but oh. thank you very much, and uh, look forward to keeping 
keeping in touch. Well, I'll tell you what, we can do a twofer here today because the fact is I don't have another caller on. I got thirty. I got 25 more minutes. So you said you had a million oh. questions. If you want to oh. pursue, I have other things I can do, but if you'd like to pursue another question, I'd be glad to chat with you more. Oh, great. You know, I was listening to one of your podcasts on homosexuality, and I think, and if I was wrong, then it's going to end this conversation. <laughs> um, I think what you said was you did not believe that people were born gay. Is that correct? I, there's no reason to believe that. That would be a question okay. of science, and there's no mm-hmm. scientific evidence to demonstrate that But that same-sex attraction is anywhere, any in any sense, innate. That doesn't mean there can't be kind of physical factors or particular dispositions that might lend themselves to vulnerability to that, but there Mm -hmm. is no gay gene. No one's ever found that when they do the twin studies. And if you have the 10th anniversary edition of the tactics book, I have this information in a footnote. And when you look at the twin studies, I think that in identical twins, there's only uh, like an 18 or 19 percent correlation that is, where one twin is gay, the other twin is also gay. That's, that's statistically inconsequential. Um, and, uh, in fact, it seems to be indicative of the fact that, no, it's not inherited, because when you have two people with the exact same genetic structure, um, you mm-hmm. don't have uh, a statistically relevant number that are also gay. Um, and by the way, this study did not take into account environmental factors. And it does seem that environmental factors or developmental factors are the most significant in whether a person experiences same-sex attraction or not. Gotcha. I also... Yeah, and, and I, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just well, going to say, there's say. A, 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 Alan Schleeman has, you know, mm-hmm. is the expert on this, and I, I think this is also in the footnotes that the, there are um, there there are significant studies with lots and lots of people where people who are younger, teenagers, whatever, experience a lot of same sex attraction and later just grow out of it, and without mm-hmm. any influence of any kind from anyone else at all. They just change. There's a fluidity right. to that, and that would be another indicator that it is not um, constitutional. It's not genetic. Yeah, and and the reason why my ears perked up, I think I was mowing the grass and I was listening to your podcast, and that issue came up, is I have spoken with people uh, when I've witnessed to them, and you know the homosexual issue has come up from time to time, mm-hmm. and they have said to me, "Well, what what do you think about?" people who are just born that way. Mm-hmm. And and I have always responded with what I do is I kind of ask them questions. And I the first thing I usually do is I say, well, do you have any children? Yes, I do. I said, well, um, do you, do you do you have your children ever been angry or selfish or whatever? <laughs> and they of course say yes. And then I say, well, why did you teach them to do that? And they look at me like I'm losing my mind. And I say, well, are you indicating to me that they were just, they were born that way. So the idea that someone is born with a certain sinful proclivity mm-hmm. doesn't justify the, the action. Right. And I, I guess that when I heard what you said, I thought, oh, maybe that's not, maybe I shouldn't be acknowledged. Well, I don't know. I guess I would say, well, even if they were born that way, why does that make me? Why exactly. Make me what, what you offered right. there is a, just a beautiful 
tactically sound dialogue that uh, I think makes part of the point that could be made. If that were the case, does that justify the behavior? Does that justify mm-hmm. acting out? Because arguably, heterosexuals were born heterosexual, but that doesn't mean there's no right. constraint on their heterosexual desires, no appropriate yeah, right. moral constraint, okay? So that's part of it. And the other part of it is, um, what is the evidence that this is the case? I, I think mm-hmm. probably the average person who thinks about this is convinced because of the press and everything, that homosexuality mm-hmm. is just innate. They're born that way. The, the gay community itself is not promoting that point of view because they mm. don't want that us to accept their homosexuality because it's constitutional. They want us to accept it because this is what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have taken a whole other angle on it. You know, they've taken it a, another step. Like, we don't need the justification that we were born that way to act out our desires. We don't need that justification. We can just do what we want to do. And so that's kind of the angle that they're taking nowadays. So uh, the key here, though, is that there's, there just is no, there is no evidence that homosexual desire is constitutional. There's just none. It's developmental, right. a lot of evidence there, but it's still a tough nut to crack in some cases. I think they have mm-hmm. a clearer picture on it with, with uh, male homosexuality than female homosexuality. There seems to be a different profile there. But anyway, so you got your twofer, Patrick. <laughs> Thank you. All right, All buddy. Right. I appreciate it, and uh, I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Okay, nice to talk to you. Take care. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take another break here at Stand to Reason, and then on to our final segment. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org slash donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. All right, final segment here on Stand to Reason. And in, uh, let's just go to Joe in Mountain View. And, uh, Joe, you have uh, the advantage of having called in just now and gotten on the air right away. No hold time for you. Great. Yeah, good for you. So what's on your mind? 
Um, okay, so my question has to do with the with Adam and Eve and the garden and the test. Um, there's a notion that if they had passed, then the human race would have been when great. The human, the story of humanity would have been all roses and rainbows after that. But I wonder, my question, do you think God would have had more tests for Adam and Eve? And if Adam and Eve had passed those tests, would their children have been tested as well? You know, I have never had this question, and I think it's a, a really good one. It's a fair one. The problem is, is there's no way to answer it, because it's not entirely clear what would have taken place if Adam and Eve had not sinned. Now, there's a speculation. Remember, there was there were two significant trees in the garden. One was the one they shouldn't eat from, but the other was the tree of life. There was no prohibition on eating from the tree of life until after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, which uh, was, in other words, after they sinned. And then they were prohibited from eating from the tree of life. Now, uh, the, the, I guess the, the speculation is that the tree of life is the tree of eternal life, and so if you eat of that, then you have eternal life, and if they had eaten being fallen, they would eternally be fallen. I don't know. These things are really hard to figure out because we just don't know. And would their children have been tested? That's a good question. I, 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 who knows? I, I honestly I, I can't answer that. Um, uh, and the, the, even the question about what the role of the tree of life, what role that played there in the garden and potentially in the life of Adam and Eve, we just don't know. We just know they were banned from that tree after the fall. And then I think the tree shows up in the book of Revelation right towards the end. But, uh, you know, that's it. I mean, that, we don't have... Um, I guess there are probably people who've done a lot of thinking on this. The difficulty is, well, there's two problems. One of them is, uh, and this is the direction I go, well, we don't know a lot of information, so I'm not even going to speculate, okay? Yeah. Well, if we can't... If it's dangerous to speculate on something that's in there, then why is it in there to begin with? Isn't it they're in there for a reason that we should know something about it? And I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, that makes sense, but we can't figure it out. So, uh, I don't, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person that's going to take chances when it comes to scriptural speculation, because I don't want to be mistaken on something that we don't have any clear revelation on. So uh, sure. it's, a, it's a good question, Joe, from Mountain View. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, considering it. And, yeah. Uh, this is this is a, a example of a Q with no A. <laughs> that happens once in a while. Okay, Joe. All right. Well, thank you for you, for what you and your team do. Oh, you're you're so welcome. Glad to help out. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Well, at least in Joe's case, his no answer didn't cost him a long wait time. So that's the benefit there. I, I want to go back to our open mic calls and Justin Begley. Uh, wait a minute. Is that the one I want? No, I want Charlie. Charlie from North Carolina, who's a woman. 
Um, and uh, she has a, a according to this, says 900 minutes, but that couldn't be right. So anyway, whatever. Do we have Charlie handy? Let's hear from Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Oh, okay. It's Charlie's loading. She must be long-winded. Uh, I kind of just sprung this on my team. Are we ready? Okay. We have a friend who is Catholic and asserts that only Catholic priests have the ability to read the Bible. Only priests have the ability uh, to read the Bible. Could you please speak on this? Yeah, I'd be glad to, uh, Charlie. Um, obviously, anybody who can read can read the Bible. The implication, though, from your Catholic friend is that it's the Catholic priests as representative of the Catholic Church that get to authoritatively tell you what the Bible means. And that's the sense of it there. Now, here, there's a huge liability to this point of view. And um, the I think this is easy to demonstrate with a few questions. All right, and my question to my Catholic friend who raised this point is: So, give me an example. What are some? What do you, do you, do you? Are you familiar with any epistle, at least by name? An epistle is a letter, and this is the way Catholics refer to those letters in the New Testament. Okay, uh, give me an example of an epistle. Okay, well, First uh, Corinthians. All right, no, this is a, a letter. All right, that was written. Who was it written to? It was written to the Corinthians. All right. Next question. Here's a letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Right. Who read that letter? The Corinthians. That's who it was written to. Really? The Corinthians read the letter. Right. Were there any priests there in the Corinthian church? Now, of course, the now you see where I'm going with this. If there are no if the if the letters cannot be understood except by Roman Catholic priests, then even those people who originally received the letters would not be able to understand it without a priest there to tell them what it meant. That's following that logic. But of course, there were no priests there. There were no Roman Catholic priests in the sense that we think of it for hundreds of years. So who got to read the text from the Apostle? Well, the people who the Apostle wrote to. The Apostle wrote to solve epistles in order to solve problems in local churches. So the, the epistle, the letter, was written in a plain enough sense so that the average Corinthian could make sense of it. Now, if the average Corinthian could make sense of it, how is it that we can't make sense of it? Now, we got to understand there's, there are translation issues, um, and there are other concerns like that, uh, cultural issues, etc., but that's, that's not the issue we're facing here. Even a priest reading it now has to have an accurate translation, and it's got to be sensitive to the cultural issues. The question is, why is it that only a an inside group of religious people have the capability of understanding a letter that was originally written to a bunch of ordinary folk, and the Apostle expected them to understand it clearly. 
without theological degrees, without special qualifications. In fact, the, the, the New Testament letters were written in, in a kind of Greek called Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E. <clears throat> it's not the Attic Greek, the High Greek of the classics. It's the Koine. It's the language of the common folk because it was written for the common folk with the expectation that the common folk would understand it. Very simple, very straightforward. Okay, and so this is this is my this is my response to that that challenge. Uh, where is if this is true? Then how could any New Testament Christian, any person in the first century, or the second century, or the third century, make sense of any of those epistles? They couldn't. And by the way, I don't know. I, I do understand the general concept of the Roman Church, that they kind of get the final say about what the doctrine taught in those epistles is supposed to be, how we're to take it. That's the teaching magisterium of the Church, okay? Um, But the fact is that they encourage Bible reading, ordinary folk reading the Bible. Now, why would they encourage their parishioners to read the Bible? if it couldn't be understood by them. Indeed, I was raised Catholic, so I know about this. There are segments in every single Mass in which Scripture is read aloud. Okay, it's the passage for the day, from the Gospels or the Epistles, okay? Oftentimes, those passages are um, not—I should say the priest isn't weighing in on that. It's part of of the, the, the service proper. You know, it's uh, it's part of the liturgy and the gospel. Boom, boom, boom. Then when they read that section, and then maybe something from from the text of, of an epistle, and then they read that section. It isn't like, okay, here's what it's saying, and I'm the priest who's in charge here, and let me tell you what this means. No, they just read it. And there's an expectation, a proper one, an appropriate one, that when you read the gospel, the things that the, are written there are have a plain sense to them that the ordinary listener, in this case, will understand. So if, I mean, taken at face value, this kind of claim by Roman Catholics, a Roman Catholic individual, is not even consistent with the practice of the Church itself. Because they read texts that they expect people to draw meaning from. Now, I understand the claim that even though Ordinary folk can read the text and get good stuff out of it. The, the final authority as to what the text means lies with the Church, and this is a, an authority claim they make. The teaching magisterium, or the Pope speaking from the chair, whatever. They're explaining these texts so you get a clear and proper sense of them. Uh, ironically, there, there is debate even among the Catholic clergy about what some of these passages mean. So, uh, and there, there certainly isn't a... Uh, <clears throat> There isn't a, a, a book, they have a catechism, but there isn't a book that weighs in on every passage. If, as some people say, some Catholics have claimed, this is the way they put it, what good is an inspired text without an inspired interpretation? Okay, now, at first blush, that sounds like it makes sense. But keep in mind, any so-called inspired interpretation is itself just another inspired text. All right? 
Now, this is a problem. Because if you say, okay, well, here's the text that's inspired. Now, I'm going to give you another set of words that are the inspired interpretation of the text. Well, that's just another set of inspired words that need to be themselves interpreted. The point I'm making is you can never avoid the fact that at some point the ordinary individual has got to exercise an interpretive capability whether they're interpreting the inspired text or whether they're interpreting the inspired interpretation, which, say, let's just call that the catechism, because there's also, there are also um, commentaries on the catechism, which is an interpretation of the interpretation. And then when you read the commentary, guess what you have to do? You have to make sense of what the commentary is saying and what it means. You still have to interpret it. So this doesn't take away any responsibility at all. And the fact is, there is no book that is the interpretation of every verse in the Bible. If you need an inspired interpretation for the inspired text, then there's a whole lot of verses that are inspired that are wasted because we don't have the so-called inspired interpretation. Anyway, there you go. And there's our music, and that's the end of our show, friends. Thank you for being part of it. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. All right? Bye-bye.